This segment of its rainmaking time is sponsored by the Sterling Hut, providers of Italian fine silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Gifts for Mother's Day, weddings, anniversaries, graduations. Go to the sterlinghut.com and check out their handcrafted sterling silver picture frames, candelabras, silver mint julep cups, silver barware, wine goblets, toasting flutes, and more. You can even have these products engraved. Go to the sterlinghut.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. Hold on to your hats. Today we have Wendy Murphy, the author of a brand new book called And Justice for Some, an expose of the lawyers and judges who let dangerous criminals go free. And I have to tell you, I read this book from cover to cover and every single one of you have got to buy this book if you want to understand the legal system in context and understand what victims go through. Our guest today has so many accolades and has such a heavy background that I don't even know where to begin. But let me just tell you this. When clients' federal constitutional rights are violated, Wendy Murphy is there. She's taken on the Air Force, Harvard, hospitals, nursing homes, defense attorneys, state court judges, au pair agencies. She has gotten the first award for outstanding advocacy for crime victims from the National Crime Victims Law Institute. She's pushed the justice system to make sure it will work better for the good guys, and she is illuminating the fact that victims are not part of the political machine. She is disgusted by her colleagues who lie, cheat, and manipulate the system to cause unjust results. She is the adjunct professor at New England's Law in Boston, where she teaches a seminar on sexual violence and directs two projects she developed in conjunction with the school Center for Law and Social Responsibility. It's called the Sexual Violence Legal News Project, which is an Internet-based alert service that distributes appellate cases of interest with editorial comment related to interpersonal violence. She's an impact litigator who has changed the laws across this country. And there's so many things that she's done that would blow your mind that I can't even list them all in the time that we have. If you really want to find out how the legal system works and you want to find out what you can do about it, you've got to pick up the book and justice for some. It is a great pleasure and an honor to welcome Wendy Murphy to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. Good to be with you too. My God. I'm still recovering from reading the book. <laughs> I, I guess that's a good thing. Um, sorry, you're, I'm sorry you suffered and have to recover, but you know the fact that you felt overwhelmed by it, I have to confess that was part of the point. There are so many critical, important points that I want to rush right into them with you right off the bat. Sure. And I'd like to talk to you about the fact that defense lawyers are being allowed unprecedented authority, you say this, to hurt victims in the name of justice. And the system has no choice but kind of to allow them to be represented by private lawyers. And most victims can't afford private lawyers. So why is this going on? Talk to the audience about this. You know, there are a couple of things, and it's both a complicated legal problem as well as a financial and political problem. But victims in the criminal justice system, you know, aren't parties to the case. The case is state versus defendant, state versus perpetrator. The victim is a witness for the prosecution and in that sense doesn't have real status, doesn't have what the law calls standing to be heard as a party. 
nevertheless, uh, there are times, increasingly so, um, it's gotten worse and worse and worse in my career in 25 years, there are times when the criminal justice system brings the power of the court to bear on the constitutionally protected rights of victims, non-parties. And so the question for me in my career has always been, how do we get the system to care? And not only to care, but to give victims a chance to complain and be heard and oppose and object and file appeals if necessary, because the system itself is extremely reluctant to add a layer of uh, legal controversy to these cases. In other words, they already see it as... Uh, enough of a governmental burden that it's the government versus the defendant and all that that entails in terms of the responsibility of the court system. They don't want the added burden of having a victim uh, and, a, and another lawyer in the room and, and what that might require in terms of resources and energy and attention. So, you know, it's a burden because really I'm asking the system on when I get involved on behalf of victims and I want somebody to care about the fact that constitutional rights have been violated by somebody without a voice, without a seat at the table, when I complain about that, it's difficult because there's no pathway, <laughs> far less than a red carpet. They don't even open the door. And, um, you know, so my challenge has been to say to the court, I'm here, I've created my own pathway, I know this is not the way the system works, but you have to listen, because we're talking about constitutional rights being violated by this court system, by you, Your Honor. And if you don't allow my client to be heard, then these terrible violations uh, uh, basically uh, go unredressed. And that's just not consistent with what it means to have due process and fair treatment of human beings in a, in a, in a healthy democracy. So I end up arguing... Here's why my client has a right to be heard. This is um, a constitutional violation which requires due process before the violation uh, can, can be allowed under our Constitution, and there's been no due process. So as a matter of due process, you have to let me be heard on behalf of my client's interests. And the courts generally say, you know, Ms. Murphy, if you can't show us where, the, where in the law, in a statute, it says that you have a right to be heard, then we're going to shut the door in your face. So I laugh because I say, I don't need a statute. I have the Constitution. I have the Bill of Rights. And um, getting judges to listen to citations from cases from the 1800s, you know, isn't easy. And 20 years ago, when I was first doing this work, it was extremely difficult. But um, it's gotten a little bit better only because the problems have gotten so much worse. Let me give you an example. 20 years ago, when I filed a case on behalf of a victim whose counseling records were being sought by the court and by the perpetrator in a rape case, where they wanted to just fish through her entire history of medical and counseling files to see if there was any dirt in there that they could use to uh, embarrass her, not to elucidate the truth, but just to embarrass her during the case, um, and I went in and said, you can't have access to this material. It has nothing to do with the case, and it's protected by the Constitution. The judges would scream and yell and say, you know, you have no right to be heard. You have no right to be in this case. Get out of my courtroom. And nowadays, um, that doesn't happen. There are lots of judges, you know, instead of one out of ten letting me be heard 20 years ago, now it's one out of ten that doesn't allow me to be heard. And that's in part because that first example, access to counseling records, wasn't perceived as particularly offensive. These days, I have cases involving things like 
a little girl in West Virginia who was ordered by a judge to, and it was a rape case, so a, a girl, an, a minor in West Virginia who is involved in a criminal case as a rape victim, the defense attorney decides that they would like to examine the condition of her hymen by forcibly intruding into her vagina and looking at the condition of the interior of her genitals to see what, if anything, might be damaged in there. That's outrageous. This is a case where the perpetrator had admitted to penetration, which is a separate question, whether it might actually prove relevant. And anyone who knows the research knows that children's bodies heal so rapidly that that 95% of the time, even when a child has been sexually violated through an act of penetration, there is absolutely no injury. And in fact, hymenal tissue uh, repairs itself fairly quickly. So if you know that data, you would think that this request by the defense was a joke, but the judge allowed it. The judge allowed it, and no one in the room stood up and said, you can't order the rape of a child rape victim in the name of justice, Your Honor. And even when the matter was appealed originally by the prosecution on the grounds that it was just irrelevant information, the Supreme Court for the state of West Virginia, the Supreme Court of Appeals, upheld the order and said, what's the big deal? Women get these exams all the time. And what struck me, then I got involved. I got asked to get involved after that in order to challenge the state court's decision, which I'm in the midst of doing. But the point is, nobody bothered to say the most important thing on behalf of the child because the child had no seat at the table of justice. Nobody bothered to say, wait a minute, where do you get the authority, Your Honor, to order anything in the nature of an intrusion into this child's body, much less a rape, a forced internal vaginal penetration to examine her interior of her body. Where do you get the authority to do that? Because if somebody had asked that question, they'd have found out that the answer is there is no such authority. Question is over. Stop talking about it. You lose. But because there was no one in the room in a constitutional sense on behalf of the victim, that debate never happened. And prosecutors, people think prosecutors represent victims. I've been a prosecutor. We don't represent victims. Not only that, we can't. It is unethical for a prosecutor to represent the personal or constitutional rights of a crime victim because the prosecution represents society. And the interests of society include generally speaking, uh, the public interest in pursuing the enforcement of criminal law, but also the protection of the rights of the accused, which is fine, and that's a good thing. But when, when no one is in the room capable of speaking up on behalf of constitutional rights of non-parties, uh, you know, the legal system, in my opinion, has a duty to open the door and allow lawyers like me, not only allow us in, but encourage us to be there, celebrate our participation, uh, listen carefully because of the real danger that unchecked authority like that could become a, a monstrous uh, establishment, if you will, of, of profound injustice and turn the whole purpose of due process and our legal system and what we know to be a balance of government power against the, the liberty interests of individuals, including crime victims, turn it around, turn it on its head, destroy that careful balance that's where I really put most of my energy is in talking at a philosophical and policy level about the evolution or devolution of our criminal justice system from 
you know, a process that was once pretty carefully balanced to protect the rights of the accused against the power of the government, which is a good thing, but it's become, in, primarily because of this missing voice for victims, it's become almost a fascist organization where uh, a series of systems, I should say, where the power of the state to literally encroach without any right, without any authority or due process, encroach into the protected fundamental rights of, of individuals. In, and, and, it's, and it's occurring because it's been masqueraded by this notion that, well, as long as the defendant is accused of a crime and wants to uh, impose his rights on the rights of a victim, then it's not really the government's power. Well, indeed it is. It's, the gov- it's, it's not the defendant's rights being protected. It's the, it's the government intruding into the private space of private people and getting away with it by pretending to be acting on behalf of an accused criminal. We really have had zero academic attention to the seriousness of this issue, and it's one of the primary reasons I wrote the book. You talk about how defense attorneys have many times excluded the victim's family from the courtroom. And when I say the victim, I mean children. I want you to talk about that because I think that's horrible. And I don't know how any court system has gotten away with that. Explain it to the audience, would you? Yeah, well, so in many, many states, and I saw this a lot in Massachusetts, but I've seen it in many states around the country where I do a lot of consulting for victims, I get calls sometimes because especially parents become just outraged and terrified that the defense attorney in a child abuse case, for example, has said uh, to the judge, I want the parents of the victim outside of the courtroom when I inquire of the child on cross-examination during the trial because I don't want the uh, parents to hear the testimony because I'm thinking of calling them as witnesses and I don't want them hearing the evidence and then shading their testimony to match up with that of their child. Now, in, in a very theoretical level, you can understand why that sort of makes sense. We don't want witnesses to listen in and then change their stories and, you know, sort of uh, trick the legal system into believing something that might not be true, and the defense attorney doesn't want that to undermine his client's rights. So it sounds superficially appealing. The reality is... The defense attorneys put the parents on their witness list for the sole purpose of then telling the court that because the parents are witnesses, they can't be in the courtroom. They have to be sequestered so that their testimonies aren't tainted. But then they never call the parents as witnesses, and they knew damn well when they moved to sequester them that they were never going to call them. And the reason they get rid of the parents while the child is on the stand is not because they're worried about the testimony being tainted. It's that they want the child to be terrified. They want the child to be fearful, intimidated by the bad guy who's glaring at the child in the courtroom. They don't want the child to benefit from the strength of the parents being in the room and looking at the parents and feeling sort of empowered and good about doing the right thing. They want the child to do a terrible job as a witness and to suffer the trauma of testifying alone without mom and dad in the room because then the child might not appear as credible. If the parents were there, the child would be strong and credible and the guy would likely be convicted. Without the parents in the room, the child would be timid, hang down his head, perhaps not answer questions as fully, not look at uh, 
uh, straight ahead because he's afraid of catching eye contact with the bad guy. Defense attorneys do this to exploit the terroristic fears of child abuse victims, and there are no judges in this country not only stopping it, but saying the truth about what's going on. I want one judge, just once, to say, Mr. Defense Attorney, I will not put up with this form of grotesque intimidation of a child in my courtroom. If you don't call those parents as witnesses, if you don't really need their testimony, if you're not sincerely trying to protect your client's rights, I will take your bar license away from you and you will be punished. You will not be able to practice law in this courtroom. We don't tolerate that kind of activity that is unethical. I've never seen a judge do that. They indulge defense attorneys, even for the most barbaric of tactics, for no legitimate reason. And it's partly because children don't matter. They don't vote. They don't have any money in society. Their interests aren't valued. They're only crime victims. They don't have status in the criminal case. Disrespecting victims, especially kids, is easy for judges. They don't get in trouble for disrespecting victims, and they know they can get away with it. They know they should just reward the defense attorneys because it's the path of least resistance or, or for some other you know, potentially more corrupt reason. They do it because they can and they get away with it, and it's outrageous. You say that defense attorneys have too much control over appeals in criminal cases and the evolution of criminal law. You say that they have greater access to the appellate courts and they can cherry pick the issues that they bring to appeal, which can shape the evolution of criminal law doctrines. Why are the appellate courts hostile when victims file appeals? It's a really big question with a lot of pieces to the answer, but let me try to simplify it. Appellate courts, like trial courts, want the case, the criminal case, to be only about the government versus the accused. Some judges, both at the trial and appellate level, adhere to that idea because they really want to continue to focus on the, the difficult balance between government power in the nature of prosecution and freedom for individuals protected by the Bill of Rights. And the, and the addition of another party to that uh, complicates things. So there are sincere judges who believe that adding that dimension at the trial or appellate level is too problematic. And my argument back to that, and I've, you know, I've argued many, many appellate decisions, and to the extent this becomes part of the debate, I often say I respect that. But the solution is not to forbid me to make an appeal or to seek judicial review in a case worthy of your attention, especially when federal constitutional rights are threatened or violated. The, ch the challenge to this court and the real remedy to stop this encroachment of people like me and the notion that we need three lawyers instead of two in the room, the, the solution is to be clear in your decision-making as an appellate court where you're setting policy, make it clear that you will not tolerate the efforts by defense attorneys indulged by judges to encroach upon the protected rights of non-parties. If you could be clear about that, that the perpetrator's opponent is the government and the only people against whom the perpetrator can seek discovery or seek anything, seek any kind of strategic effort, they can only act against their opponent, the state, the prosecutor, the cops, agents of the state, that is not 
the victim. The victim is a private person, not an agent of the state. If we could get appellate courts to make this declaration clear and firm and over and over again state it in all of their cases that they will not indulge defense attorneys or judges at the trial level intruding into, for example, as I mentioned before, the, the, the vagina of a child rape victim or into the privileged therapy records of a crime victim or, or any other area of protected privacy or protected space, if you can make it clear that, that, that defense attorneys aren't even allowed to ask for the right to intrude, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be filing an appeal. I wouldn't be complaining at the trial court level. You could be done with me forever, and wouldn't that be delightful? I say that all the time, <laughs> that, there, that there really is an easy remedy, that I'm not asking for standing because I feel like making noise. I've been granted standing by the reach of the court into my client's private space. In other words, I'm not, I'm not forcing myself into the process. I've been invited by the reach. I've been dragged in, and I'd rather not be dragged in. So I challenge courts all the time to think about what's going on at a systemic level and to cut the cord. Cut the cord. But in the Supreme Court of West Virginia case involving the little girl, for example, who was ordered to submit to a forced vaginal exam, a rape, if you will, in the name of justice by the state's highest court, when they debated the question, they never once mentioned the child's constitutional rights, never once mentioned the Fourth Amendment, which protects against unlawful searches and seizures, even of human body parts. They never once mentioned that the child wasn't even in the room, that, that nobody was there on behalf of the child discussing and debating her interests and her rights in the matter. And by indulging the result the way they did, they essentially either showed themselves to be not particularly intelligent, which I doubt is the explanation, or completely uninterested in the fact that they were growing this common law doctrine of quote-unquote discovery rights for perpetrators in criminal cases, uh, it's, it, growing it and expanding it into the private sphere. And that's what's so weird about this is that that I'd rather assume they're doing it on purpose, but that's even scarier than thinking they're a bunch of dummies. <laughs> you know, doing it on purpose suggests that, that they think it's acceptable for people because they've been charged with a felony, develop the power of the government to violate other people's constitutionally protected rights. That's just so profoundly fascist in the worst ways possible. And it's ironic when you consider that the criminal justice system is, is primarily designed to inhibit fascism or, you know, to protect against the overgrowth of government power. So it's really profoundly ironic, but more than that, it's just devastating to these real victims who, who are real people suffering intrusions without anybody taking responsibility or even thinking about due process on behalf of the, you know, that careful balance of interest that we claim to care so much about. Can you talk about the judge that threatened a $500 per day fine if a file was not turned over? I want people to really get a glimpse of this. Oh, I love this story. Yeah, some years ago I represented a rape crisis center that was ordered without any justification whatsoever simply because the defense attorney wanted to see what was in the file of a rape victim, ordered to turn over the complete file. And I had complained to the judge on their behalf, 
hey, you know, what, what are you doing ordering access to this file where the defense hasn't even made an argument, much less a credible argument, that there's something in there that matters to, to his client's case? And, Your Honor, if this defense attorney were asking you to force the victim to reveal her history of uh, library books and, you know, uh, things she bought at the grocery store, you would say, before I order that kind of information disclosed, put aside for a minute the fact that the judge has no power to order that, but anyway, I'm trying to make the point to this judge that there at least should be some kind of showing, I say, you, you wouldn't let him demand disclosure of a victim's grocery receipts, why on earth are you allowing him to demand disclosure of privileged counseling files? And um, the judge slammed his gavel and screamed and yelled and, you know, just said, I'm going to hold your client in contempt and they're going to pay $500 a day as a fine until they turn this file over. In other words, he wouldn't even respect my argument and give me a decent answer. That judge by the way, who has since died, um, was appealed because it was so outrageous and barbaric. And what I said in the appeal was, this is a rape crisis center that provides free services to an underserved, mostly minority population. They don't have $500 a month to pay the rent. They they have nothing. And you're going to charge them $500 a day as punishment for making a good faith objection to this barbaric ridiculous, unconstitutional court order. You know, and and I point out in the book, as I often do to courts, if this were the New York Times objecting to an order compelling them to divulge the identity of a confidential source, and they wanted to object and then appeal, nobody would say, oh, we're going to charge you a million dollars a day as a fine while you go ahead and appeal. The, you know, judges generally say, okay, we won't punish you. Go ahead and have your appeal. See how it goes. And if you lose, you're going to have to comply. Or for that matter, charging the New York Times $500 a day, as was imposed against my, rel- my per- perfectly poor client, uh, might not have hurt. Maybe the New York Times would have said, fine, we'll take a $500 a day fine. We can afford it. So I file the appeal basically making a couple of arguments. One is that it's an outrage that a judge would punish a good faith objection to a clearly unconstitutional order, punish the effort to seek judicial review by this group that had done nothing wrong and simply wanted to, in fact, not only wanted to protect the victim's confidentiality, but was obligated to, as a matter of law, obligated not to comply with an unlawful court order. But I knew that, you know, this was the kind of circumstance where my client was relatively voiceless, really powerless, and that we didn't have a lot of... um, authority in society, if you will, to be able to stand up against a judge. So I did something that I really think was quite clever and I wish more people would do. Um, And with the help of an organization in New York, I filed an appeal and, and attached to it a spreadsheet of people that signed a petition in support of our position. And uh, the petition was generated by a group that just asked people around the country on behalf of my client that had no money, would they offer to serve one day in jail each? And we only wanted 500 people, and we were going to offer to the court. It was really symbolic more than anything else. We were offering up 500 people who each agreed to spend one night in jail in lieu of the $500 fine because they all were so outraged and so committed to the cause and believed so strongly in the injustice 
and didn't, you know, didn't have any respect for the economic punishment that was imposed, that they were willing to give up their liberty in exchange for the barbaric fine to just to prove the point that, that this rape crisis center should have an opportunity to seek judicial review, to file an appeal, to have the appeal heard before they were required to violate their clients' rights. So what was terrific about it was, uh, you know, the way, the way that I structured the appeal is, and, you know, I filed it and said, uh, motion to stay the imposition of the fine or in the alternative to allow people to serve their day, a day each in prison as an alternative sanction. And I attached the petition to my appeal um, to make a point, you know, but also uh, to let the court know that there were people who were outraged. And although they have no natural seat at the table of justice, they were going to be heard through the attachment of this petition to my appellate brief. And the good news is, it got it was sassy enough as a strategy on my part. It was unique enough uh, to call to, to to call the attention of the case to the New York Times, which subsequently ran a story about it, and we did prevail, which was terrific. Um, and you know, it just shouldn't have taken that much effort. I, I just call it uh, to folks' attention because that's what democracy is, right? Democracy means people working together to express themselves, even in institutional spaces where they tend not to have uh, an invitation or the same kind of uh, voice that others have. The judicial process is exactly like that. The judicial system is a place that purports to be part of a healthy democracy but has no oversight, especially in terms of this kind of problem. So I really wanted to use the case to teach the public about the way that democracy can be brought to bear on holding the judicial branch of government accountable, because we tend only to think about working together uh, as something we do to form uh, alliances to create new legislation. And that's fine, that's all well and good, but it's the enforcement of new legislation in the environment of a criminal justice matter where those same people who fought for new laws have no voice that's where the problem kicks in. So this was a place where we were doing exactly that. We were saying, you know, here's a bit of democracy right right to you. You know, you damn judicial branch that, that has shut the door on us. We're going to force our way in. Here's a bit of a, you know, of, of a protest, if you will. But it wasn't a protest in a traditional sense. It was really a way of just giving voice to unrepresented people in, in a mechanism, you know, an appellate brief that otherwise... You know, if you play by the rules, and I'm not, I'm not one to always play by the rules, but if you play by the rules, you would never be allowed to give voice to that interest that was not being protected and respected. So it was great, and I love that it's in the book, um, and, you know, as a way to provoke others to think creatively. That's really the key here is to get folks who feel that injustice is happening and that they're not being heard or that the courtroom door is being slammed in their faces. Think creatively. Don't look up the rules and see how you can fit your needs into the existing rules. Redesign the rules. Find new rules. Use constitutional principles like due process to create new pathways. Uh, you know, the law is there for a reason, and the, and the notion of due process as, a, as an uncharted pathway I think it's very exciting for lawyers like me who love writing on blank slates. I never go to the back of the law books and take out the form and fill out the form. You know, that's how new lawyers are trained, that there's a law book on the shelf and you look in the back and there's a form and you fill out the form and you file it. I never do that. Virtually every case I've ever had, 
I've created uh, my own form, and I've created my own motion from scratch that has never matched up with anything else that's ever been filed. And it's not that it's against the law to do that. It's that it's against the established law. So I, I, you know, I'll file something brand new, but I play by the rules in a sense. I use constitutional ideas and, and doctrines like due process to justify the need for, to file this creative thing that I'm filing and to get the court to understand that even though this is different, it's not inappropriate. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. Let me ask you something. You say we need more legal support for victims who refuse to comply with unjust subpoenas and court orders and that victims need to start filing lawsuits against unethical defense attorneys and defense investigations. How do you see this unfolding? You know, if more lawyers could be creative in terms of using due process to challenge unjust decisions at the trial and appellate level, that would be terrific if we just had a regular system of doing that. But some advocacy groups um, that purport to do victims' rights work explicitly don't file appeals. And in part, that's because they get funding from the government to do certain kinds of work, but the funding comes with strings that say well, you're going to you're going to lose your funding if you file appeals. We don't want you filing appeals. So I think you know consumers of information have to be very skeptical when they Google something about you know victims' rights lawyer and they find a group that is not capable or willing or financially able to file appeals. They have to look elsewhere. Don't sign up with the organization that looks good because if they're getting funded by the government, there's a good chance. They're going to be. They're going to. They're going to look good, but do bad things, including just making you feel better about having suffered a terrible injustice. And it's going to be too late if you sign up with a group like that. It's going to be too late once they've done their work uh, to do things differently. So one of the. So one of the other pathways uh, in terms of holding systems accountable is to literally find a bold enough attorney. And I've done this myself many times. 
to file a lawsuit against a defense attorney when the when the attorney before this gets into the courtroom sometimes it's you know even possible just to sue the attorney before the judge endorses what the attorney's trying to do sue the defense attorney for the encroachment uh under the tort law doctrines of abusive process um for example, I sued a defense attorney some years ago because he sent a subpoena to a victim's therapist demanding that she show up in court and hand over the victim's treatment file. The therapist didn't know whether or not she should show up because it was a subpoena, it had the raised seal, it had $7 in the envelope or whatever it was, and she felt you know, very uh, conflicted that she didn't want to be disrespectful of the law, and this looked very serious, and it was signed by a magistrate. So she called uh, the attorney organization for her social worker. It was like the National Association of Social Workers. She called them and said, what am I supposed to do? I don't think this is correct. And the uh, lawyer said, call the defense attorney who sent it to you and just ask him questions like, did the judge allow it, and so forth. So she did that. She called the defense attorney, and the defense attorney said, uh, the judge ordered you to be there. So she calls back the National Association of Social Workers who said, well, if the judge ordered you to be there, you have to go because court orders are more powerful than subpoenas. So she shows up, and she sits in the courtroom for hours and missed all of her clients. And um, at the end of the day, the judge said, why are you here, ma'am? And she said, he told me that you ordered me to be here. And the judge said, I did not. You were not ordered to be here. You may leave. And then she called me. Had she called me beforehand, I would have said, don't go. But she called me after the fact, and we sued the defense attorney for abusive process. He had no right to send her a subpoena. He had no right to lie to her about the court having ordered her to be there. And, you know, we won not only the uh, imposition, the amount of imposition on the time it took for her to be there, but all the costs that she lost associated with showing up. And, you know, the word got out that if defense attorneys send subpoenas for this stuff to people like victims or or holders of their records or uh, holders of, you know, pharmacy receipts or, or school records or doctor's records or whatever... Um, that they can and should be sued. And once the word gets out that defense attorneys can and will be sued, they'll stop doing it because they care about money. And, well, they should. We just need to teach victims the boldness of doing this and find lawyers with guts willing to file these suits. Don't you find in your profession that a lot of lawyers are afraid of the judge and the system itself, even though they're in it all the time? Um, Lawyers can be afraid of judges. I think in the beginning of your career, it's easier to be afraid because you're not quite sure how it might affect your career. If you think you disagree, don't speak up because nobody speaks up. And so you're very obedient, as was I. In the beginning, I was both naive and obedient, but pretty quickly, um, you know, I, I started speaking up just because it felt so wrong. Some of the work that I was doing as a prosecutor was so strange um, you know, I, I would be in a courtroom there on behalf of the government representing the government and there'd be an issue come up about a victim uh, and something that was going to happen to a victim that was terrible and wrong and it just didn't make sense. And I would say, Your Honor, I realize that's what you believe the law says, but 
But that's not really what the law says in any way. That's wrong. It's unfair. You shouldn't do that. I realize you believe that's what the law says and requires. It's not right. You shouldn't do that. You should not issue that order. More than one judge said to me, uh, Ms. Murphy, you, you have no right, you have no authority to complain like that. Um, and <laughs> in particular, I can remember one judge who said to me, Ms. Murphy, you are the government. Your job is to state the law, not complain about it. If you want to complain about it or change it, you have to get a different job. And that's what I did. You know, after my five-year stint in the DA's office, I uh, offered to represent a, a rape crisis center for free to help them fight back against the development of this doctrine that was allowing ever-increasing access to their clients' counseling files. And um, I remember saying at the time, well, I'll just do this for a year as a volunteer project, and then I'll get a real job. And, you know, famous last words, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> why, why I tell that part of the story is that I believed in the law. I still believe in the law a little bit, not as much as I used to. Um, but I believe that the law has the capacity to fix itself. The law has the capacity to open itself up to challenges that are that are legal in nature, that are meant to critique and demand reform of the law. It's what I do. I use the law to change the law all the time, and I'm not the only one who does it. So I don't... I don't have tremendous disdain for the law. I'm very proud of my profession, and I'm very proud to be a lawyer, and I believe that law itself can reform itself. But it takes a lot of guts to be able to do it. It takes a lot of money. So, you know, 20 years ago when I set out to do some of that reform work because I was so disgusted with the way the prosecution process worked when I was a member of it, um, in terms of causing harm to victims, I mean, I really couldn't believe that we were causing additional harm to people who had already suffered terribly. It just was so confusing to me that and we weren't being kind and gentle and caring to people instead of making their lives worse. It was barbaric, and I was part of it, and it was really upsetting. So when I set out to try to fix some of that, I thought I could get a lot of good stuff done with one good test case, you know, one impact litigation case, and then I'd get a real job. And what I realized pretty quickly was that, you know, you peel back the onion layer of, of just one case and then there's just so much behind that and more and more and more becomes evident about the nature of the problem, the depth of the problem. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not an ideal practice if you're trying to make a living because most of my cases are pro bono, most of my cases involve uh, people that don't have the money to pay for an attorney. And as an activist, you know, I don't want to wait for the right test case to come along that also happens to have a high-paying client because I'll be dead seven times over. <laughs> Let's uh, talk. Yeah, so, go ahead. And then I want to ask no, you a couple you know, questions. But the point is I do have clients who know the work that I do. I have benefactors who help. And so I do get to make enough of a living. And the, and the good news is, uh, you know, I call myself a nonprofit law firm because I do get to choose cases based on the the issue and not based on the ability to pay. And I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Not all lawyers can do that. But increasingly, especially with my students, I'm seeing this new generation of lawyers developing where they're literally graduating from law school and setting up shop to do exactly that. So they're not 
signing up for the big firm practice. They're signing up for the freedom to be able to do cases they care about, cases that will help them do their part in making the legal system better, uh, but also make a living on the side. And I'm very proud of so many of my students and, frankly, former clients who have since become lawyers because of the injustices they endured, uh, literally turning, uh, you know, turning their lives into meaningful um, professional um, commitments uh, because people do have hope, and that's the message of my book, ultimately. I want you to talk a little bit about being exonerated. You could be exonerated and yet 100% guilty. I thought that's a very critical distinction that we should understand more clearly. Yeah, one of my favorite chapters in the book, and by the way, let me just say by way of overview, each of my chapters in the book is in a sense a dirty trick, something sneaky that happens that the public won't necessarily know about unless they can pull back the curtains a little bit. And so each of my chapters pulls back the curtain on a particular dirty trick and explains using real-world examples uh, how the distortion happens. So one of my favorite chapters does that with regard to the so-called Innocence Project uh, uh, narrative that you know we've all heard about for years and years in this country. I mean, every time you wake up, there's a newspaper with a story about some quote-unquote innocent man who's been freed because of new DNA testing. Uh, we, uh, my students and I have been looking at the first hundred cases of the Innocence Project. And by the way, um, I think they're up to something like 250 by now, but we've started looking at, uh, we started looking at the cases years ago and we've charted the first hundred of those cases because it seemed at least superficially so in the beginning and it's turned out to be uh, mathematically so uh, that about 90% of those Innocence Project cases that where the public believes the men, in fact, are actually innocent and had nothing to do with the crime, 90% of those men are, in fact, guilty of the crimes for which they were convicted. And the only reason they had their convictions overturned is because DNA technology evolved and somebody went back in and tested old evidence from the quote-unquote crime scene and found that somebody else's DNA was present. Well, you know, it's superficially very appealing to think that if somebody else's crime scene was found, uh, DNA was found at the crime scene, but that it must mean the original guy who was originally convicted is innocent. But that is far, far from the truth. Um, number one, DNA rarely tells us the whole truth about anything. If anything, it tells you that the person whose DNA was found was there at some point, or somebody deposited their DNA um, at the scene, which is increasingly common. You know, perpetrators of crime are not stupid. They watch CSI. They understand DNA. Increasingly, we hear about cases where they literally bring someone else's DNA to the crime and deposit it there to, for the purpose of messing up the crime scene and creating false assumptions about guilt. Can I tell you something really quickly? It was just yes. really wild that I found out. A year ago, I went to interview a very famous fingerprinting guy, he had come up with a new way to figure out whether even the police had tampered with the fingerprints. So I went to interview him, and this is like one of the few guys in the country that do this, and it turns out he was hired by the Department of Defense, and he was gagged. He can't talk about that part of his work. So he sent me to a protege of his. I called her in Arizona. She's working for the Arizona State Police Department, and she's gagged. So all these people who have the ability to actually identify if there's been tampering of evidence are being gagged. 
It's the strangest thing. I I have actually heard that myself many, many, many times in these cases where I've reached out to um, folks who know the truth and they are told they can't speak. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple of reasons why I think that is. And it's one of the scandals related to these Innocence Project cases that matters a great deal. Number one, um, some of these men, lots of these men who claim to be innocent, and that, you know, it may be that they're exonerated, by the way, which means their legal conviction was overturned. Exonerated simply means the formal adjudication of guilt did not happen or was overturned. Um, or they were found not guilty. But that doesn't mean actual innocence, and we all know that from O.J. Simpson, right? He was exonerated, but I think it's pretty clear he's not innocent. So that's um, one point I want to make. The second part is that these men, lots of them, then go on to file major, significant, financially very valuable lawsuits against the government. And there's a lot of money being made and being tossed around after those lawsuits are settled. And we don't know where that money is going. All I can say is that when there's a lot of money being made, people don't speak up. Sometimes it's because the cops are told, don't speak to anybody because we're going to face litigation and we don't want to be you know, we don't want anything you say to be used against us in the lawsuit. Sometimes it's more than that, that they have agreed. Sometimes the government has agreed to pay a, a substantial amount of money, and then they uh, are also under agreement in the settlement not to speak publicly, and that means their agents, including their cops or whoever's done the testing. But a famous, famous case, um, the uh, which I write about at length in my book, The Central Park Jogger Case, is a very good example of this. DNA from um, a man who wasn't originally prosecuted and convicted was identified on the victim's, uh, associated with the victim's rape kit um, years after the conviction. And that man, Matias Reyes, um, ultimately said that he was guilty and that he acted alone. Well, the five young men who at the time pleaded guilty or admitted their guilt, I shouldn't say they pleaded guilty, but they admitted their guilt in confessions that were videotaped, they then said they were innocent because Matias Reyes claims he acted alone, so they have to be innocent because a convicted rapist said he was guilty. Well, if you look at the evidence, instead of just giving 100% of credit to Matias Reyes, who had a, a lot of reasons not to tell the truth, and some of which have not been widely dis- dispersed, um, you know, you'd say, well, why weren't the guys, the five young men who confessed, why weren't there, uh, why, why wasn't their DNA found at the crime scene? And the answer is, some of them didn't have any sexual contact with the victim. Most of them had no sexual contact with the victim. And lots of people believed that they all confessed and knew that Matias Reyes was the primary attacker, but they didn't rat him out because he was the older guy in the gang. And this was, you know, there was a tremendous amount of gang activity in Central Park on the night in question. The five young men who confessed also confessed to other crimes at the same time, or around the same time as the rape. And those confessions, taken by the same cops, were not subsequently criticized as coerced or unfair or untrue, but that's what they said about their confessions in the Central Park Jogger case. Oh, we were forced to confess. We were made to confess by the police who didn't let us talk to our parents and, you know, were mean to us and didn't let us have water and so forth. That's nonsense. 
absolute nonsense. Their confessions were not coerced. There's zero evidence that the cops coerced them, zero. And they all confessed and didn't implicate Matias Reyes, cops believe, because they were afraid. And, you know, all these years later, later when they said, oh, yeah, uh, we had nothing to do with it, and he confessed, therefore we should not only have our convictions overturned, which is one thing, because the DNA technology wasn't around at the time of the crime, and that's fine, you know, but you can't blame the government and sue the government because DNA hadn't yet been developed as a technology we, that we could test for. That's not the government's fault. They, they didn't stop DNA technology. Um, but nevertheless, the conviction gets overturned. Okay. Then they all filed $50 million lawsuits claiming they were wrongly convicted and that the government should pay hundreds of millions of dollars in total, some, because of their convictions. That is an outrage. But the money that's pushing their false claims of innocence is tremendous. The people that are giving that false claim of innocence jazz and, and attention and media coverage and Ken Burns, you know, this really well-known documentary filmmaker who has produced a film that, te- that does not tell the truth at all. And it is pure propaganda meant to pressure the, the police into settling for hundreds of millions of dollars. It's despicable. It's disgusting. But the point is that it's driven by money. And if you read my book, you will see why there is no doubt, much less a reasonable one, no doubt whatsoever that these guys, all five of them, were involved and are guilty. And I'm not saying that each of them raped her, but that's not the point. If you, as a gang of six jointly get together and beat and kick and rape and sexually attack and strip and violate one woman, even if only one of you actually commits the rape, you're all equally guilty under what's called joint venture theory. So who cares if their DNA wasn't found at the crime scene? I wouldn't have expected it. And we also shouldn't expect DNA to appear in other kinds of similar cases, many of the Innocence Project cases are what we call joint venture cases, where there are two perpetrators, but only one of them originally got caught, the other didn't. Of course, the one who didn't get caught is the one whose DNA is found at the crime scene. So the one guy who did get caught and was convicted or confessed to the crime then files a lawsuit claiming, ah, see, my DNA wasn't found. Let me go, overturn my conviction, and give me $50 million of the, government, of, the, of the government's money, which is our money. It's the people's money. And, you know, this notion that the absence of DNA from the guy who was guilty proves that he wasn't guilty is so ridiculously, ridiculously not true in the vast majority of these Innocence Project cases. But nobody's telling the truth out loud. In my book... I go through lots of examples of high-profile cases where if you only read my book, you will know the truth, and if you only read the mainstream news reports of the cases, you won't know the truth. And why do I care about this? Because the victims in those cases are being painted as liars. Every one of them is being described in the story as someone who got it wrong or worse, intentionally lied, and that is disrespectful. We also have a problem because disproportionately the Innocence Project cases involve sexual violence and sex murders, violence against women, and people have already started using the Innocence Project data to falsely claim publicly 
that the Innocence Project has proved through science, because so many of their cases involve victimized women, they've proved through science that women who report rape disproportionately lie compared to people who report other kinds of crime. Even though we know that that's absolutely false, the Innocence Project data is causing, uh, um, um, through propaganda, frankly, this misinformation to be out there, and it's causing the public to, in, to infer and to take on the, through these narratives this false idea that, that the cases that are more often than not false convictions are women reporting rape or violence against women that is both sexual and leads to their deaths. Why I worry is the people reading the newspapers are then the jurors in the next cases and the next cases, and, and they're going to make their decisions and pass judgment on the credibility of victims and how they feel about cases that are sexual violence murders. They're going to pass judgment based on whether they've read and what they feel about the cases they've read uh, about Innocence Project overturning um, convictions and exonerating these men. They're going to falsely believe they're innocent, falsely believe that there's a disproportionate problem in sex crimes and sex murders, and they're going to use that false information to conclude that the guy in this case must be not guilty or might be not guilty. They're going to give it extra skepticism, undeserved extra skepticism. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. It's funny how sometimes you don't take action until people have died. I remember visiting my mother in an Alzheimer's facility in Studio City and my cousins, Carol and Dan, were there. And I had this little tape recorder with me. My dad had passed on five years before. And I started to interview my cousins, Carol and Dan, about my parents because they were very close to them and they knew them for many years even before they were married. I want you to know that I got the funniest, most adorable stories about my mom and dad that I would have never heard otherwise. I kid you not. I found out that my dad, Buddy Greenhouse, used to invite people to massive parties, bring everybody together, and then they'd all get to the party and they go, where's Buddy? And he was not there. In other words, he would just put the whole thing together, get everybody to come, and sometimes he would not show up. Now, you may not think that's funny. You may think that's rude and all that, but I thought that was hysterical when I first heard about it. It's just not something that I would think that my dad was capable of, but apparently he was. Many of you listening to the show are going to wait until your parents and your sisters and brothers and cousins pass on before you ever capture the wonderful stories and legacy of your family. I'm making a very special service available to those of you that would like me to interview your family and capture the wonderful stories that are the gift of your family legacy. It's a really special service. It's very confidential and private and can be done in either audio or video. Don't miss the occasion to capture the living legacy of your family and the great treasures that are sitting there. I'm a miner. I know how to get to those treasures. Call me at its rainmaking time at 626-398-8652. Thank you. And back to the show. We have only a few minutes left, and I want to ask you, would you like to talk about Jean Benet, Kobe Bryant, or Michael Jackson? Which one oh. would you like to talk about? <laughs> John Benet, please. Yes, please. Go ahead. But okay. I think this is very instructive. I also think that the public has no clue what you found out about this. I want yeah. you to blow the lid off it. Let me say that anyone who cares about the truth in the John Benet Ramsey case has to read my book. There's just no other source that 
produces the truth to the level I do. There are lots of books out there. Many are distortions of the truth. Some have nuggets of truth. Mine is as close as you're going to come to the whole story in terms of explaining not only uh, what happened, but why. Why is that child dead? And what happened after the fact to distract us from understanding the truth? So let's go back to the beginning. I was working for, I think, NBC at the time. um, So I was in touch with the case from the beginning. And like a lot of these cases where the distortion happens over the course of years after the fact, in the early days, there was a lot of information out there. Um, most importantly, the autopsy of the child, and then information about what kind of investigation was going on and so forth. So that stuff, I think, we all, we all know if we've paid attention for that long. Things like the fact that the autopsy showed the child had severe vaginal trauma, severe vaginal injuries that included both old and new or acute injuries. And the language that I, that I repeat in my book that was in the autopsy itself describes her as having epithelial erosion and hymenal erosion. Um, and remember, I said that children's bodies generally repair themselves so quickly that to see any vaginal injuries at all is pretty unusual. This child had pretty severe injuries, which tells you something. There was a lot going on sexually with that child, and that because she had old injuries as well as new injuries, we have to believe that the person, if the person who killed her on the night in question is the same person who caused her old vaginal injuries, then it was someone who had ongoing intimate access. I think it's fair to say, you know, with old and new injuries, the killer was someone who had ongoing intimate access to the child. That eliminates all the quote-unquote stranger suspects. And who were the two adults in the home on the night in question? Just the mother and father, that's it. So why might the case have been difficult to prove? Well, you know, if, if two people are the only suspects and they stick together like glue and they clam up and take the fifth, as did both John and Patsy Ramsey, hiring lawyers on the day in question, taking the fifth and refusing to go to the police station for interviews and then hiring a PR firm and hiring the most powerful law firm uh, in Colorado, if not the entire country at the time, that spoke volumes, but more importantly, why does that become difficult to win a case? Because if you think Patsy killed the child and you go after her, she points the finger at John, there's built-in reasonable doubt, and vice versa. You go after him, he points the finger at her, built-in reasonable doubt. She agree- They can each agree to be each other's reasonable doubt. That's pretty frustrating for cops. Nevertheless, I think the evidence pretty strongly explains that uh, it was John's behavior primarily, but I think Patsy certainly had a role in it, that led to the child's death. And as I write in my book, she was not killed on purpose. People who know about the other injuries to her body know that she was not likely killed on purpose for a couple of reasons. One, there was a lot of staging. For example, there was a a major skull fracture, um, but there was no bleeding. And there's a lot of vascular activity in the brain, so somebody who gets whacked in the skull is going to bleed pretty profusely. She had, no, she had relatively little bleeding, like a teaspoonful, um, to the skull because her heart had stopped beating by the time that blow was, um, was landed. And that tells us that the blow occurred after she was dead. So she must have died from some other reason. And the autopsy itself says she died from respiratory failure. Well, <clears throat> respiratory failure is an interesting diagnosis because... Why would a child die from respiratory failure? Oh, she was strangled. Well, no, there's no indication that she died from strangulation, although there was a ligature around her neck. 
But we do know that there's a good possibility she died by accident through the introduction of sedative drugs. Why? Because respiratory failure is a common risk associated with children who are given drugs. Things like benzodiazepines, they increase the risk of respiratory failure for children, especially sporadic use. Uh, and I don't understand the medical reasons why that is, but it's if you looked up children and benzodiazepines, you'd find that there's a problem with regard to respiratory failure. Well, why might we be worried about benzodiazepines in the John Bonnet Ramsey case? Because the cops asked the parents when they finally did relent to uh, interviews with accompanied by their lawyers many months later, they were asked at length about benzodiazepines and other sedative drugs in the home, things like clonopin and so forth, and uh, Valium, and I, you know, I list the drugs that they were asked about, and the question is why? Why did cops want to ask them about drugs? And then we go back to the, to the last part of really important forensic evidence, which is that there was undigested pineapple in the child's body, in her belly, at the time of death, which means she... She, or at the time, uh, right, at the time of death, which means she ate it within a couple of hours of death. And yet the parents said that she had absolutely no pineapple at all. There was, she, they were at a party earlier in the evening, and they said they brought her home sound asleep at about 9 or 9.30 at night, sound asleep in the car, and carried her straight to bed. Straight to bed. Never woke up and ate no pineapple at the party. Well, there was a bowl of pineapple on the kitchen table when cops arrived the next day. Before the child's body was found, all the, all the evidence was seized. The bowl of pineapple was seized. We don't know to this day what was found. We don't know whether anything was found in the bowl of pineapple or what tests were done, if any. But we know that undigested pineapple was found in the child's body, which means she ate it. So common sense tells you that, of course, the parents are going to be asked about the pineapple, and they were. And when asked about the pineapple, they both said, we didn't give it to her. We have no idea why she had pineapple in her belly. We didn't give it to her. We don't know why there was a bowl on the table. Patsy's fingerprints were on the bowl on the table, but they said they have no idea how she got pineapple in her body. And I'm thinking to myself, why would a parent be so unwilling to acknowledge giving their child pineapple? This, you know, it's like... Okay, might want might not want to admit you gave your child French fries for dinner, but pineapple's good for a child, right? <laughs> Healthy. So it, the suspicion around that bowl of pineapple has been lingering for years and years and years. And the real problem is we don't yet know the answer to the question: Was the pineapple bowl tested? If so, what are the results? I'm told that only about ninety percent of the file remains hidden, <laughs> so we don't why? know very much. Why? About and by, that's what I was going to ask you too, Wendy. Why isn't the file being released? I don't know. Um, you know, uh, for a long time, they said the case was still under investigation because um, homicide has no statute of limitations, and, you know, keeping it under investigation is important, and there's an exception to the public records law that allows law enforcement to keep files under wraps so long as the case is under investigation. As soon as it's not under investigation, the whole thing becomes public. Well, I don't know when that day will ever come. Um, some people say it's already come and we should have the entire file and we should know, for example, what the test results were on the pineapple. But by the way, let me not forget one of the most important factors. There's something really disturbing about our lack of awareness of the truth in this case, given that it was revealed publicly very early on and is widely 
available to the public that the first three search warrants in the case were for child pornography and on computers and in the home and so forth. And even though reports were subsequently released saying that there was, quote-unquote, no child pornography found in the home, you know, I don't know what that means. Do you mean you looked for pictures on the dressers and found none? What about the computers? There were computers that were searched. And why? You know, the public has a right to know why they were looking for child pornography and what did they find. There were, there were re- reportedly returns on the warrant filed with the court under seal. And then, you know, let's not forget that now we know, because just this year, January of 2013, it was revealed for the first time that John and Patsy Ramsey were indicted in the death of their child, indicted in 1999. She died in 1996. They were indicted soon after that by a grand jury that considered all the evidence. Why did it take until 2013 for that to be revealed? The public has a right to know. Now, mind you, they weren't prosecuted because you can be indicted by a grand jury and a prosecutor still retains discretion not to proceed, and who knows why. I've never heard a good explanation except for that idea that they didn't want to lose against each parent by the other one blaming the other one. But we still had a right to know that they were indicted, and then the prosecutor as an elected official should have said, and I'm going to tell you why, despite what the grand jury voted to indict on, I'm not going to proceed, here's why. We never heard that until this year. That's outrageous. In the death of a child... You know, the parents were the suspects for so long, and when parents aren't the suspects, we can expect them to pound the pavement, scream and yell, and fight for justice for the kid. When the parents are the suspects, we all have to fight for the child, because whether we know the truth about what happened to this one high-profile case, uh, the child in this one high-profile case, that helps us better understand the possible truth in other deaths of other children. The truth matters not just because truth is important, but because it informs our understanding of other children's deaths. And we don't have the truth in John Benet Ramsey's case. So I push for the truth to be revealed, not because her case is more important than anyone else's or that her death is more valuable than the death of some poor kid in the middle of nowhere. It's because the deaths of all children matter. And we can't come close to understanding how and why children die, unless we know the truth about the cases that are getting a lot of media attention, because that has such a tremendous effect on our knowledge base and our biases and the narratives that we're told influence the lens through which we critique and absorb and understand all information. So, you know, I care about the case. I care about the truth coming out. I'm very eager uh, to see... The, the truth come out in a way that we can all talk about openly and honestly, even if justice is never served, even if there's nobody ever prosecuted, which is probably going to be the case, we should have access to the documents so that we can look at them and understand the reality of what happened and, you know, put, a con- put the context uh, up against, uh, or put the context within which we've been pr- provided with false information Uh, up against the reality, and then talk about how that happened. How did we get that distortion of reality? I write in the book about a really disturbing situation for me personally when I went on Paula Zahn's show. Paula Zahn at the time had a show that came on CNN right before Larry King, and it was in connection with the news coverage about this man named John Markar who was arrested in Thailand because he had reportedly confessed 
to the killing. Turned out he was never even in Colorado or Boulder, at least not at the time of the crime. Um, and I knew he had nothing to do with it because, again, I'd read the file. I knew the evidence. Um, but I was on a program. I was invited onto the program to talk about the possibility of prosecution of John Marcar. And I was asked by Paul Azan whether I believed that he would be prosecuted for murder. And I said, absolutely not. Absolutely. The day will never come. And she said, well, but he's already been charged and they're proceeding and they're going to said it's never going to happen because not only would prosecutors have to prove that he did it, which is impossible. They have to disprove that the Ramses did it, which is also not possible because there's a mountain of evidence against them. And I tick off vaginal injuries, warrants for child pornography and so forth and so on. And, um, we go off the program and I get a phone call from John Ramsey's lawyer who, who says roughly, and I put this in my book, Wendy Murphy, this is Lynn Wood. I just heard you accuse my client of molesting and killing his daughter. And if I ever hear you say that again, you will be defendant Wendy Murphy in my lawsuit. You check my record, blah, 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 blah. And I was so offended that he threatened me so offended that he was in my cell phone threatening me. And I thought at the time, you know, this is why the truth isn't out there. People get bullied into silence. They get bullied into staying quiet. And that's so wrong when it's a kid because the kid is already dead. The kid has no power. The kid has no voice. The kid has no money. Um, You know, whether it's a dead child or not, when bad stuff happens to kids, they have no chance against that kind of a threat. Were you offended or did it jolt you? Oh, well, I was offended and, uh, and outraged. And, I, you know, I told him to kiss my ass. <laughs> and um, <laughs> among other things, I was so angry. Oh, I was screaming at him. And um, I, I, I don't even want to repeat it. But I, I mean, I'm sure it was, it was, I'm sure it was, it was juicy what you said to him. I'm sure it was, it was pretty packed. juicy, yeah. I don't function like that. I just don't think you should bully people into silence because in this country, people need to be heard. If you don't let people at least be heard, they become explosive. That's when we see things like Columbine and, you know, the Aurora killings. People have to be able to speak. They have to be able to say what they're angry about. And I don't mean me. I mean victims. Victims who feel voiceless and disrespected, they are going to become vigilantes, not because they're mean people, but because they are desperate and they're angry. And sometimes vigilantism, um, and I don't believe in vigilantism, but sometimes vigilantism is outward in the form of homicide and mass killings. Sometimes it's inward in the form of suicide. This is stuff that's increasingly more prevalent in this country. Uh, and it comes, in my opinion, comes from silencing, not exclusively, but as a predominant force against the well-being of all of us. And we don't believe in that in this country. We don't believe in bullying because we have at the top of our list of the Bill of Rights, the thing we believe in most, the number one spot in the Bill of Rights is free speech. And that's there for a reason. We know that it is the core of what civilized democracy comes from and grows from and thrives from. And silencing in this context is a part of the problem that threatens to really undermine 
core freedoms for well, all it, of it, us. It's if silencing of it's silencing of attorneys. It's silencing of witnesses. Yeah. It's also silencing of victims, like in the Michael Jackson case. Oh, they were gosh. paid what twenty two million dollars to shut up. A direct payoff that was not only silencing, and Kobe Bryant did the same thing. Paid his victim. We don't know the number. Maybe ten million dollars. It's speculative. Lots of millions of dollars being handed to victims as a quid pro quo to go south in a criminal case. In any other circumstance, that would be not only called silencing, it would be called obstruction of justice, and it would be against the law. And in a lot of Western countries, that would be prosecutable as corruption in a minute, in an instant. And it is not tolerated. We think we have the greatest legal system on earth. Really good legal systems do not tolerate obstruction of justice. They do not tolerate that degree of corruption, period. I mean, and I don't mean corruption in a conspiracy and blah, blah, blah. I mean just that literal, I'm rich, I'm famous, here's some money, go away, and everybody celebrate. The response to that is basically from the other side, that the payoff is simply to stop the bleeding of the person's reputation being marred in the public. In other words, it's go away from me, money. And, yes, uh, I understand. Yep, you know, I understand and so that. the terms are part of the terms of the go away from your money is silence. Stop talking about it. So don't you think there are some cases where there's been a payoff? The victim is asked for silence as part of the terms. And really, the person that's paying them isn't necessarily guilty per se, even if they are in most cases. But they are saying, I can't take this anymore. No, I don't think it's appropriate, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Because if we believe, if we agree that corruption and obstruction of justice are the biggest problem that drives the injustice itself, that disproportionately prevents justice to be done, then we can't say it's okay in some cases. Because allowing it at all, especially in the high-profile cases, legitimizes all forms of obstruction and corruption in every case. And then we can't, we can't then claim with a straight face that we give a damn about corruption or obstruction of justice. So, no, I, I don't agree at all. I do believe firmly that victims should not suffer so that they then become so distraught they're willing to take anything as a quid pro quo. And we do need the system to... Um, forbid some of those retaliation and intimidation tactics so that the leverage doesn't grow, so that the pressure doesn't grow that then makes us feel so bad for the victim that we say, we understand why she's taken a payoff. Who would tolerate that kind of abuse in the name of justice? But we're never going to fix that overarching problem if we say that some payoffs are okay, because that just legitimizes the harm to the victim as a strategy that builds the force that then produces the need for the payoff. So right. no, I, right. I so, can't go there. But I will say that wait, I will wait. say that the, for the Kobe Bryant victim in particular, some of the blame lands squarely with the advocacy groups who allowed and indulged her to be targeted that way and did not speak up enough for her. Uh, you know, too many people because of moneyed interests sided with Kobe Bryant, even though they, for example, worked at the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault. I wrote this in my book. Half of the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault quit in protest against that organization's support for the victim because they wanted to support Kobe. That's pretty crazy when you think about it. Like, you know, don't be an advocate for victims if you actually support perpetrators, right? It's so common sense. 
But um, that happened in Colorado. The silencing of entire organizations was uh, was very effective and part of the defense strategy that was pretty shameful. Um, and the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault, I think, was you know really at fault there for not having the strength to rise up. There, the, and, and the National Organization for Women, similarly. I know that was uh, shocking. Absolutely unbelievable. shocking. They should be. They should hang their heads in shame. The Michael Jackson case. Um, you know, the same thing happened in the sense that the victim was all in favor of justice until the price tag got high enough. And then we all become uh, tools, right? So, so, so victims will use the, the criminal process as leverage to ramp up the value of their payoff. So are you suggesting there should be no mechanism to do a deal? No, never, 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 ever, never, never. No, right, I agree no. with you. I, I mean, I agree with you. I agree I've with said you. This, I've said this in both cases, and I'll say it forever, that victims can and should do both things. In terms of having both civil and criminal justice opportunities, you go to the criminal case, you testify, you tell the truth, win or lose, you then file your civil case. There's no either or. And the trading off of the money for the, no, 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 no. There's no reason for a victim to pick one over the other. And lawyers who leverage the criminal case to ramp up the value in the civil case, in my opinion, are unethical. And, you know, the fact is, it's not a settlement when it's corruption. The right, I get it. The occurs in the civil case, right? It's obstruction of justice. And what I, what I don't understand is why prosecutors don't, even when they take the payoff, still send the subpoena, still proceed with the case, still put them on the stand. It's the prosecutors, too, who are indulging these tactics. If this, and think about this. If a prosecutor in the Bernie Madoff case had said, oh, well, you know, the key witness took a payoff, so we're just going to drop the charges, do you think all of the victims in that case would have said, okay, that's fine? No. No. Obviously There's not. no difference. If anything, personal violence is a more serious harm than money violence because people are more important than stuff. The trading of silence for book and film deals, you brought up the O.J. Simpson case, selling the truth versus telling it. You had made a recommendation when you talked about that in the book as to what should be done or what should not be allowed to be done, just if you could state it. You're talking about in terms of the corruption and the payoff? Correct. Like, you well, know, you can't take the Fifth Amendment in court and then turn around and oh, sell your book ah, or your film okay, deal. Sorry. Yeah, um, because in terms of uh, corruption, one of the recommendations I make is that uh, any witness who either offers or any, anybody who either offers or takes the, the money, including a crime victim, should be prosecuted. Uh, there's no question about it. You've got to do it. Um, but for people like O.J., this is a slightly different trade problem in a different chapter in my book, um, for somebody like O.J. who took the fifth and then because he didn't tell what he knew, which is fine, he has a constitutional right not to, and I really value the, the right to remain silent. I think it's critical to a healthy democracy. But if you're going to take the fifth and not become a witness against yourself, you can't then store up that information that you kept private under the Fifth Amendment and turn it into a profit-making book or movie. You just can't do that. You can't make money trading against the privilege of remaining silent without 
turning the Constitution itself into a, a source of commodification of, of, of rights that should not be for sale. Now, when you say you can't or you shouldn't, what are you proposing, though? Are you proposing uh, a law I'm, against I'm, that? Or? I'm saying, well, I'm saying a couple of things. Number one is that we need courts to start thinking from a constitutional commodification perspective, start thinking differently about whether there isn't some larger problem at stake than just is it good or bad uh, in a moral sense for convicted murderers to make money telling their stories. It's not a moral question. It's a question that pertains to the the integrity of the Constitution, the integrity of the Bill of Rights, the integrity of, of the promise of civility that comes with a careful balance of government power and individual freedom. So I'm sort of pitching it to appellate courts that make decisions about these things. Stop just looking at that issue as if it's just a, a matter of policy or morality, because we really don't have a, any court uh, addressing the issue at the dimension that I just suggested. The, the case law out there, including at the Supreme Court level, analyzes the problem as if it's his right to make money versus the public's disgust with the fact that he's making money. So I'm, I'm making my pitch to the appellate courts to look deeper into how they analyze the dilemma. But also, I'm making a pitch perhaps to state legislatures and to Congress to find a way to codify tougher prohibitions on the sale, if you will, of the Bill of Rights in this manner. The profit-making value inherent in the nature of secrecy is not new. We all understand that something that is allowed to be secret naturally has value built in if people are interested in having the truth be told. That, you know, we should have lawmakers addressing uh, whether there isn't a better way to, to codify that doesn't come up against some of the constitutional problems that are legitimate, that doesn't bump up against uh, those, but that nevertheless inhibits the incentives, you know, drives down the incentives for people to think about uh, information that's protected by the Fifth Amendment as becoming valuable in a capitalist sense for sale after the case is over. I've become so disgusted, not so much with the sale problem, the notion that this is all about sales, uh, as with the judiciary's unwillingness to recognize the potential for much deeper harm from which we may never recover. You know, once you allow the dent, if you will, to be made, the camel's nose in the tent problem, once you've allowed that, that uh, compromise to something sacred, it's very hard to pull back. And, you know, I, I care about the law. I care about my profession. I believe that law is the single most important institutional power that can make us better, that can rise above money-based influences. Not that it's good at that. It really isn't always good at that, but it can be better. And, you know, thinking at a micro level about some of the problems, which I do in my book, is, a, is good because it helps people at a, at a very basic level in the trenches, like me, to do our work a little bit differently, more mindful of these loftier concerns. But, but the people that are really in charge of the loft aren't doing their jobs either because, you know, they're not applying fundamental principles to some of the controversies they're facing. And that includes things like not thinking about the harm to, harm to the Bill of Rights when somebody like O.J. Simpson gets to trade on the value of the Fifth Amendment. It also means getting appellate courts to think 
about the harm to civility itself when they don't give standing, when they don't give voice, allow uh, non-parties to be heard uh, in the bodies of crime victims who are suffering indignities that, that are affecting their federal constitutional principles and rights. When you, when you let those harms happen without redress, without anybody putting the brakes on, there is a tremendous threat that, that that careful balance that we've worked so hard to achieve in this country uh, is going to start to crumble. And we will not quickly recover. We will not quickly recover. I'm so happy to have you on today. And I'm so glad that you wrote your book, Injustice for Some. There are some other elements in the book. You have so much in this book. We're scratching the surface, and I want to ask you if you'd be willing to come back because I want to talk to you about unreasonable doubt versus doubt, crime labs, the federal data registry on arrest and recidivism having to do with rape. I've got so much stuff to talk to you about, and I know that you've just blown the roof (laughs) off what people have even been thinking about, but I really hope that people will pick up the book and justice for some by Wendy Murphy and read it, and then we'll have Wendy back on in a few months. And I hope that you'll come back. I have many, many, many questions for you. I will, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the work that you do. And those of you that would like to get a hold of Wendy Murphy and find out more about her work, you can go to WendyMurphyLaw.com, pick up the book. And Wendy, thank you for being with us at It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you for who you are and everything you're doing for the world. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Bye-bye.